Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Jason Coggins. Plenty of you will remember Jason or know of him as the head of research at Coda Capital, a role that Jason has moved on from in the last couple of weeks. We recorded this just prior to his role changing. Whilst Jason has been a pivotal figure in Coda Capital over the years, he's moved on to a role where he's now a consultant to Coda. I thought it would be fantastic as a bit of a hat tip and a thank you to Jason to reflect on many of his thoughts regarding portfolio construction, private versus public markets, and how to go about choosing a manager. Thanks, Jason, for all your input and the help in building Coda Capital. It's been fantastic. We look forward to continuing the relationship. Please remember that this podcast is not specific or individual advice. It is recorded for entertainment information purposes only. Please, you're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. I'd like to thank the producer, Tom Oriel, and also to Joshua Clark of Parakeet Productions for their work in producing this episode as well. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Inside the Rope. Hey, Dave. Jase, maybe you can kick off by uh, giving our listeners an introduction to who you are. Yeah, so uh, Head of Funds and Research at Coda Capital. So my role is really to uh, identify strategies to construct a portfolio for clients. And so a big part of that is understanding the type of clients we have, uh, how they invest, how they want to invest, their needs and their wants, uh, sourcing best ideas across uh, this market and offshore. And, and what's been your background in investment and markets? Yeah, so before Coda, so been at Coda since day one, where we uh, helped construct uh, from a blank sheet of paper, the investment offering here. Uh, previous to that, uh, I was at ANZ Wealth, where we uh, had about six different dealer groups, uh, both uh, salary channeled and also aligned dealer groups, mm-hmm. uh, where I was responsible for managing uh, the approved product list uh, across those channels. Uh, and before that was uh, really asset consultancy. So at ANZ, very retail and the look and feel of who the clients were, I'd be guessing? Uh, very retail. Uh, the private bank channel was relatively small. The difference with ANZ was it was effectively in every market. So right down from very small clients uh, to the private bank. And so there wasn't really an ability to have a focused APL. Uh, the APL was effectively everything in the market uh, with some type of quality overlay over it. And leaving there, what did you came? Well, what did you learn, and what came out of your head to say, "Look, I really want to try and avoid this because it doesn't lead to great outcomes." So, look, before ANZ, I was primarily at small companies, uh, small to medium-sized companies. Uh, ANZ was a great time in my career. I got to meet a lot of people, and you get to immerse yourself within the industry. So, the connections you make uh, was really important. Uh, but I like to get my hands dirty. Uh, I really like to understand the client. Uh, We have a big philosophical belief that you can't design an investment offering without knowing the client. Now, if you're in a business like ANZ, what it was, uh, you have hundreds of thousands of clients and you don't really have a distinct type of client. Mm -hmm. So it's quite difficult to actually build an investment offering. And the way I look at it is you're on level 45 of a beautiful building and you're building an investment offering without knowing who the client is. Uh, The great thing about Coda is we go into client pitches, uh, we go into client meetings, uh, and we're a relatively small to medium-sized team. So we know most of the clients. When we go out 
you know, domestically and across the world, the type of strategies we're identifying is not necessarily what we like, but it's what our clients actually need and want uh, and our research applied over it. And in your mind, what, what do you think or how would you describe what that client looks and feels like, generally speaking? Uh, they're all very different, uh, but the way I think of it is they've all made or they've all created or they've all built or they've all inherited uh, or they're the custodian of a large pool of capital. Mm. Uh, the typical client will outlive uh, their, their net wealth. Uh, they will uh, not be drawing down on it uh, like a typical uh, pension or formerly accumulation client. Mm-hmm. And so these clients do have the flexibility and afforded the luxury of investing in a bunch of different types of assets, but they've built this, they've worked hard, they don't want to lose it, but they want to grow it. Yeah. I've often heard the term, you know, from people within these walls at Coda here that, uh, you know, everyone who turns up here can afford to pay for the, the milk and the bread and the paper. Um, and they equally don't necessarily want to risk what they have and need for what they don't have and don't need. So, you know, things like downside mm-hmm. management and capital preservation is really important. These are these are people who tend to feel mm-hmm. the losses as an order of magnitude far more acutely than they do of any gains. I also um, think there's a, a level of engagement that our clients have. So our clients are typically very engaged. And I think that's a big difference between um, a, a discretionary or, or even in a retail uh, setting where clients are, are somewhat engaged around the strategy. How much do I need to save? Um, you know, what sh- should my spending be? How much do I need in retirement? Here, there's a real engaged element of how they want their money invested, mm-hmm. uh, where they want it invested, and they want to know what's going on on, on on a pretty regular basis. On a regular basis. So highly informed. Yep. How do you think about portfolio construction and what are the sort of boundaries and constraints um, that you generally approach it with? So this is going to be a hard one. So I think there's a lot of people out there who've got the technical knowledge. There's a lot of smart people out there who can assess a fund and assess an asset class. Mm -hmm. The real issue is the organizational capability. So the great thing about when we built the Coda offering, we had a blank sheet of paper and we could all sit around the table the investment team, senior leadership, and determine what works in the industry and what doesn't work in the industry. And typically what doesn't work in the industry is just the organizational capability of executing uh, a robust portfolio. So at Coda, we can invest in any type of asset class, uh, any type of structure. So it can be an onshore PDS fund, it can be an onshore IM fund, it can be an offshore fund. Uh, it can be uh, in liquid, very liquid asset classes, uh, and also, you know, capital called longer data of investments. So having more tools in the toolkit actually enables a better portfolio to be constructed. So I don't think it's necessarily rocket science. It's just how you execute. Do you feel that a lot of the way the industry has evolved has been a convenience of a lot of the product manufacturers of the day to say, well... Therefore, our advice and our positioning ends in, oh, and by the way, we just happen to be in the business of selling X, Y, and Z type of funds. So that suits a static asset allocation that looks like this. Yeah, and I also think that that manifests into a platform setting. So it's much easier uh, to to run a business where everything is on platform on a daily basis. Uh, We've seen that with the growth of SMAs uh, in this market. Again, going back to that blank sheet of paper, we want the client to feel like investing in a longer dated capital called structure looks and feels the same way, excluding liquidity, 
uh, as it does on a, on a PDS fund. So when our clients look on the platform, uh, they can see different types of investments and it's just executed in a different, but it reports on the same way. And so I think what the industry has done in their search to creating a very commoditized offering uh, has just made it absolutely as simple as possible. Now, that can work when markets are rallying and everything is going up. But in a period where uh, you are not fully diversified and you have too much of your exposure in just traditional asset classes, uh, it's unlikely to generate the outcomes that are required. And Jace, if you look around the world, um, what are the sort of institutions, both home and abroad or organizations, where you say, look, they do a really good job of putting together a portfolio that might be a future fund, a sovereign wealth fund? A Kiwi saver, I think I've heard you talk about in the past, or what, what types of organizations do you think really lead that? So I don't think it's the tactical, aggressive asset allocation calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, picking a stock, will BHP go up more than Rio over the next week? It's about having as much differentiated risks in portfolios as possible. So along with very traditional, very liquid asset classes like bonds, like equities, let's look at some of the other things that we have exposure to. Uh, we have private debt. We have you know, insurance-linked securities. We have litigation financing. We have agriculture. Uh, we have some of the more traditional alternative strategies. And what we've done very well, I believe, is really around that opportunistic bucket. So investing opportunistically uh, in longer-dated, uh, sometimes single-asset deals, uh, we're, we're taking advantage of a situation where there is often a motivated seller or there is a premium that we can earn by taking a longer-term approach. And again, our clients are not like everybody's out there in the marketplace. Our clients are not drawing down this capital. They'll probably outlive this, this, this amount of capital they have. And so they are able to take those, those risks in portfolios. Now, someone or some people may criticize that our portfolios look overly complicated because there are those differentiated risks. But that's the only way you're going to generate low downside risk and acceptable uh, returns. And, and Jace, how do you think about... Um, private versus public markets. Is, is that something you say, generally speaking, you'd prefer one over the other? Uh, it's a very controversial uh, topic just around valuations in, in private markets. So look, I would typically say since inception, uh, most of our uh, illiquid exposure has actually been on the defensive side. And so we have had small allocations to PE uh, and venture but a large majority of our, our private exposure has actually been in the more defensive asset classes. Now, I can Across the not, credit and the debt portfolio uh, that exactly. you've been in very, very early, yep. where Australia has probably lagged by all metrics the rest mm-hmm. of the world. It's common in the US, mm-hmm. 30% of the market or so, and Europe, yep. similarly in Australia, it's been a very, very small portion of it. Exactly. And, and growing not, rapidly. Yeah, and we're not talking about distressed credit or, or you know, uh, predatory lending. Uh, these are typically very short duration. Mm-hmm. Uh, senior asset secured, back, first senior mortgage. Exactly. And so if we can get a high single digit return with something that recycles capital quite quickly, because the average loan maturity is 12 months, we don't have a stale portfolio, that feels pretty safe. So look, on the private and public side, I think there was a period over the last you know, three years where uh, private markets were slow to adjust uh, and had benefited from you know, uh, interest rates coming down uh, and remaining low for so long. I actually think the next couple of years will be quite exciting. Uh, There are going to be a lot of people who made silly decisions uh, over the last five, 10 years. Uh, We're going to see a lot of people who are overweight uh, private markets. We're going to see a lot of institutions who are relying on maturities in previous vintages to fund fund the new. Exactly, to fund the new that won't be able to do that. Now, 
we think that's going to throw up a number of opportunities. For example, secondaries could be a very interesting asset class. Uh, we think, you know, maybe, you know, PE deploying now uh, or over the next three years and VC could be quite an interesting spot because you're simply going to have people who are more motivated in selling existing uh, exposures. In terms of your preference for non-traditional assets, um, where, where do you draw the line? Are there many things that you've looked at over the last, what is it, eight, nine years where you've just gone, gee, my, I just can't bring myself to, to get my head around that? Because, you know, uh, I've got to say over the last six years, we've, what have we got? Fishing rights, mm-hmm. which has been mm-hmm. new, people have had to adjust to, private debt people yep. had to adjust to. Um, you know, I can remember some first clients we talked to about that with, oh, gee, the the other sides of these debt must be terrible. And then we, when, then we started showing them in a line item who some of the organizations were or institutions or the strengths of the lend. They were, were taken back and said, all right, we'll give it a go for a while. And now they've allocated it more fully. But, you know, where do you or have you ever felt you've been in a trap? Well, we're just seeking something that looks and feels different as a differentiator versus true return and, and true value add. So I think our clients are more than willing to deal with underperformers when they understand why. Uh, If it is a black box or overly complicated, that's really hard. Mm. Now I want to emphasize when you're investing, it's not a game of 100s. You don't need to get 100% of things right. But when something does go wrong, clients need to understand why and they need to understand how we can restore value. So I think the complexity is something that, yes, people can criticize. Maybe the offering has interesting things like litigation, financing, fishing rights, agriculture, but ultimately, these are generally hard assets, and you can actually, through education, learn about them. The fishing rights examples, I mean, they've been around for, you know, since the 1980s. This is just not, it has not been a financialized asset class uh, like water has been for, for 20 odd years. Mm. Uh, this is very similar. It's around sustainability of a natural resource. Uh, it's finite assets. Uh, and this is an asset class, the fishing rights, that, you know, banks can lend against. So NAB has very sophisticated models in how they lend. Uh, it's just been an asset class that's been held by families. Uh, they're now facing succession issues. This is a, a multi-billion-dollar asset class, and it's not like we were the only people who recognised the, the the opportunity. So we seeded that uh, with with a major corporate super fund, uh, and we feel that this is a better way for us to gain exposure to agriculture. Uh, so it's it, it's new. It's not in a typical model portfolio out in the industry, but it's a real asset class that's been around for a long period of time. It's finite. Uh, and there's a lot of lot of tailwind supporting that asset class, particularly our entry point. Uh, export markets have been closed, particularly to China. So being able to get in there, we didn't want to be predatory, but getting in there uh, to provide support to these local communities because effectively they would be forced to sell these assets, uh, typically uh, to offshore buyers. Uh, how this fund is structured, uh, we buy these ITQs and we lease them back to local communities. So going back, you, you must see a, a hell of a lot of deal flow. And in mm-hmm. fact, you know, I, I've been taken aback walking down Pitt Street in Sydney here with yourself as every distribution person who spots you across the roads, yelling, waving, et cetera. But, you know, h- how many transactions or deals or investment opportunities per week on average would come to you via email, phone call, text, signal, direct message. Is there any other ways that they've tried, people have tried yeah. to get to you? <laughs> All different types of things. So look, there's a lot of strategies out there uh, and you know everybody's trying to do their job, uh, but you can't speak to everybody. Uh, mm. I think as Coda has evolved uh, over the last nine years, people know the types of clients that we have. 
Now, ultimately, it's not me picking and choosing. Obviously, we're picking the managers in an asset class that we think is relevant for clients, but it's obviously what is relevant for clients. Our clients may have existing assets. They may have property assets. They may have a direct equity portfolio. They may have index exposure for their equities. Uh, our role is simply to find asset classes that should be in the portfolio that are not well represented. So you do need a disciplined approach of filtering. Uh, we have a bunch of informal and formal partnerships that help us with that. So the formal partnerships, so who we pay to help us. Mm-hmm. So things like Mercer, things like Impact Australia, uh, things like our institutional asset consultant who helps us on the risk uh, actuarial side. What I think has been our secret source over the last nine years, which was almost by accident, are our informal partnerships. And these are similar firms to ourselves, but they're overseas. We're not competing against them. We found these and they found us by giving references to investments that we're in. And what we found was, why don't we harness this relationship? Now, not saying anything bad about my time at ANZ, but if I was to share ANZ research with an external firm, that would be a big compliance breach. Uh, I don't know why, but it just would be. Now here we have you know three relationships, uh, a firm that kind of looks the same as us in New York. Uh, we have a very strong relationship with, with uh, two individuals uh, in the UK, and we have a, a couple of family offices that we share information with in Singapore. The productivity benefits uh, that we've been able to derive from that, rather than knocking on 50 doors or answering 50 calls, we can go to uh, th- those informal partnerships and ask them, what are they looking at? Uh, and we do the same thing for this region as well. When we go to New York, instead of knocking on 50 doors, uh, the Pub and Market Walnut team can give us 10 ideas. And so sharing information, the funnel, using our informal and formal partnerships, uh, the process works really well. Listeners to the podcast will realise we we actually did a podcast with them. I, I can't say the name, uh, but Carl Wellner was on. I, I want to say it was probably a year ago. For those people who want to go look at it, you'll be able to say the name of the firm better than oh, I Michael. can. There you go. Jace has got it. Um, so you alluded there to a lot of deal flow, a lot of investments mm-hmm. coming through. You know, at any one time, you might have best ideas, and the firm might firm might have best ideas of call it 20 to 30 and then opportunistic portfolios. Now, you alluded to these opportunistic investments, which are closed end, um, sporadically appear. Um, If people are deploying capital from a standing start and that's cash, um, how long do you think they should take to build or have in their minds that they're going to give themselves to build a portfolio that fairly represents what they're looking for? in order to t- harness that opportunistic portfolio? Is it six months, a year, two, three, four years? What's your thought? So the opportunistic, and again, for all the listeners, is the longer dated uh, strategies that could be, you know, capital called, uh, it could be a single asset deal. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, in the early days, refinanced uh, with one of our managers, a large loan position uh, in the largest privately owned dairy farms in New Zealand. And we're able to extract a free 20% uh, equity position in that fund. The problem with the opportunities they become they they come about periodically, and typically the best opportunities come in the worst market the worst environments. Time, sure, when everybody's yeah. running for cash, exactly. And you know, it takes a while to build. It should take a while to build because you don't want to deploy all in one vintage. You need to think about vintage risk. So you want to be able to allocate to some of the longer dated asset classes over you know a five to seven year period. Uh, but look. <sighs> History shows that, you know, typically it's a three-year journey uh, to potentially five-year journey to build up that opportunistic portfolio. But by the time you get to that five-year mark, you're getting so much cash flow 
uh, from harvesting and maturities in that opportunity portfolio that it almost becomes self-funding. But look, I would just really, you know, really emphasize that the importance on the opportunity bucket is not going all in at once. It's also just not allocating to everything. So, you know, I think we've been quite good in, in avoiding some of the, the, the really, um, you know, where a lot of capital was chasing our markets. You know, we didn't go into this crisis with much, you know, I don't know if we, maybe one or two positions, but in, in commercial property, for example, mm. would rather see the dust settle. Maybe it never will, but maybe, you know, in two to three years time, there might be an opportunity. But I, I want to emphasize the opportunity bucket should, you know, be benefiting from not just illiquidity and the benefit of taking a longer time horizon, but maybe just some contrarian view around an asset class or where there is a genuinely motivated seller. Yeah, there's something going on. There's dislocation in the market. I remember us taking advantage. It might have been about the June straight after COVID mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. a distressed uh, credit portfolio where they just had to sell mm-hmm. and, and they were they were offering it up at a NAV that was you know deeply discounted and we knew the public markets had already recovered, which made it an easy transaction. So you talk about the selection of managers and some of the methodology and how you think about that in a framework. So what are some of the things that you look for when you're talking to a manager? What, what are the, the do's and don'ts? What are the things that you're, you're saying, yes, I like that, I like that, or I'm, I'm actively trying to avoid? So experience and track record across a cycle, you know, stripping out style influences and actually determining whether or not they're a good PM. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be aligned. So what we love the most is where they have almost all of their their, their non-housing assets in their own fund. Uh, we like them to own the management company because we know they're going to stick around uh, and they won't be this career PM who's changing uh, two to three years uh, each time. Uh, it has to be in an asset class that we like and where we think there is a reason why we should pay up uh, for fees uh, if, there, if there is alpha available. But look, it's around people, it's around their experience, it's around their alignment, it's around their transparency. And then most importantly, it's how it fits into a total portfolio. You know, because we are afforded the luxury through our clients to invest in all different asset classes, you know, we don't want to be doubling up on risks in portfolios. We want manager diversification, but we don't need 10 global equity managers or six mm. Australian equity managers in, in the core space. You know, we want to look at differentiated risks. I think how that's done in the private debt space and how you've done that is, is a good example mm. in that, you know, at first brush, a lot of people will say, well, that's a lot of exposure to private debt, but you dig a little bit deeper and you find the underlying positions are actually diversified, not only by city and geography, but the actual underlying asset, whether that's real estate backed or uh, businesses and cash flow financed uh, or hard asset backed alternate to that. Um, what, what are some of the, well, sorry, just let me ask about that experience piece. How wedded to the experience are you at the same place? And I, I think I know the answer to this because I think you've probably made some very good decisions on backing people um, where others haven't. But on it, but how? How? Talk to me about that experience and what you're looking for. So it doesn't necessarily need to be in exactly the same setting. So we'll go back to the the Myris Longreach Fund, for example. And so that team hadn't run a fund before but they've been managing these assets for corporates uh, in a different setting. So we just need some observable point where we know that they've got the skill in valuing and holding and managing these assets. And so we're not welded in 
this person must have a 10-year track record in exactly this. Mm. Because I can guarantee you there's a lot of firms out there. Let's use Myris as an example. If other people you know, look at it and want to use it, they'll probably ask for a track record of three to five years. It won't get through the IC unless won't it's get got through that, the IC. that five. And you see that a lot mm-hmm. with small cap managers where they come out of the big institutions. Yep. And the difference here is, you know, this is not necessarily an alpha strategy. It's holding these assets potentially forever. It's understanding the value of these finite assets. Like you can't create these anymore. And understanding just how valuable premium export seafoods uh, market is. And so for us, you know, I think, you know, someone managing a small cap strategy, you want to know that they're, they're out there talking to all the companies. They're able to assess on a fundamental basis these companies. Uh, they're constantly thinking about, you know, the market. It's very different to this hard asset type strategy. And so, look, experience is important, but we're not sitting there saying it, it must be particularly what, a particular way. Now, on the IC taking three to five years, well, the issue with that is, first of all, you won't get capacity. Uh, we've been able to quarantine a fee discount and capacity. Uh, we get first capacity for a long time and we get big fee discounts. Uh, and also the inefficiencies in that asset class are the greatest. You know, it's currently a family owned sector or a corporate owned sector. It's becoming financialized, a real financial asset like water rights have. That transition is when you're going to see the greatest returns. So what do you talk, how do you think about size when you're looking at an opportunity? Um, you know, I've had I've had many people, when we're talking to them, talk about some funds which have done phenomenally well and gathered a lot of, lot of assets. And, you know, then they've really just had more index-like performance and, and their performance has been poor. And they talked to me about the PM being really hamstrung by the decisions they're able to make because of the size of the funds that they're now wielding about. How do you think about that in the context of the research and, and what you're looking to put forward? It's really hard. I think in, in every market uh, size, uh, there's, in terms of generating alpha, becomes harder and harder. And so you need to talk to managers about what is the capacity and watch that over time. Some managers do adapt their strategy and do a remarkable good job. Others, you just see that migration to index returns. So I think, you know, that's, what industry super funds are finding, they're indexing a lot of their, 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 their core global and domestic equities and then supplementing that with, with satellites. But it's an issue that we have to face. Uh, it's a reason that you know, we want to do more and more research to find uh, different ways of accessing markets. Uh, but we just need to be cognizant that you know, every, every fund or every strategy uh, or every asset class has capacity considerations. And how often do you find new managers with new strategies where they're saying, oh, we, we think capacity is about X, and then they come back in a year or two and they've done very well. And they say, well, actually, we've done some testing and we think it's uh, now 2X because of this, that, and the other, and then the next year it's 3X because of this, that, and the other. Is that something you see much of? Uh, look, in our universe where, you know, when we invest in active strategies, the the fund manager and the team have a lot of their money in the strategy mm. uh, because these are boutiques. You might see that in some of the really large fund managers out there. I don't necessarily know. You know, we have seen some instances, but you know, in these particular type of managers where the manager is earning more money on their performance than they are on, the, on their fee, that creates a natural barrier to wanting to become too big too soon. So that's good. I was wanting to sort of dig into that alignment of interest, mm-hmm. and then you sort of talked about. Um, wanting to see that most of their assets, ex their sort of residents, uh, are, are in the fund. And when you talk about the fee alignment, do you want to see that all in performance fee and not in MER or, or what's your preferred way of seeing that? 
we're really pragmatic in how fees are structured, but we just want to know that the net returns that we're generating, if we go active, justify mm-hmm. it. So, you know, we ask managers to tell us why they've set a particular fee structure, and then we'll work out whether or not that's that's the right way or the right approach. Uh, but we try not to dictate to managers uh, one particular way, because you know, looking at our you know our debt allocation. Uh, some managers will will charge really a cost recovery, but uh, they'll collect the origination fees. Uh, other managers will charge an MER, uh, but rebate back the origination fees. Now that's kind of the same thing. So it's understanding, you know, if they were to clip the ticket on each aspect of where they could generate fees, that would be an issue. And if they're not generating returns uh, to justify their existence and the fees they're charging, then we'll happily have that discussion. And Jace, what are some of the red flags when you're um, doing your diligence on some of these managers and groups where you think, look, you know, it's just it's just not for you, not for us, where you see some of these things or some of these behaviors? I think the best example is when something doesn't go right. Uh, and that's normal in investing. And if you have a period of sustained underperformance and a sharp drawdown, managers can start doing silly things. They may change the investment process. They may completely turn over the portfolio. Maybe that's the right decision. They're trading a lot and they're very active, uh, but we don't want to see style drift. Uh, the other aspect is just their behavioral, you know, their emotional, their mental state. So we try and spend a lot of time with managers who are underperforming, not to second guess them or tell them they're doing it the wrong way, uh, but just to see that they're all there. And they're managing the portfolio. Where one strategy that you know is not performing so well, you know, we sat down with them uh, in California. Uh, no staff turnover. Uh, the PM is putting you know money in each month uh, to to further align himself. The team uh, are still traveling around the country to to find ideas, and they're still executing the strategy in the same way. Now that's not to say they haven't learned lessons from this this period, but we just don't want to see them staff staff departing completely different investment style, uh, silly mistakes, taking more risk or less risk. We just want to make sure that they're behaving the right way. So we do spend a lot of time with managers who, who aren't performing, uh, but there does come a time where the, the investment thesis has changed. And you know, that may be you know, an example you know, over the years was where uh, the portfolio just becomes more complicated and it's hard to understand the story or how everything's coming together. Uh, and we will exit a strategy if the investment thesis breaks down. Uh, we haven't seen, you know, departures, you know, key per, key key person departures, mainly because of that boutique structure. Jace, what haven't I covered that I should have? Look, I think, you know, a big part of appointing an advisor or appointing a group uh, is to have an investment philosophy that's documented. Uh, to continually invest in research, uh, there's a couple of you know free lunches in 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 markets. Diversification being one of them, uh, letting time fix problems. Uh, you know, the other free lunch I like to look at is is access. Some people call it complexity, but being able to get access to differentiated asset classes. Uh, you know, there's obviously risks out there in in private market valuations, uh, in some of the more you know larger uh, asset classes. Uh, but you know, when I look at something like you know a litigation financing strategy or or the ITQ fishing strategy, or the opportunistic strategy, or secondaries, which we think is going to be a really interesting part of the market, they're going to be things that are going to be able to you know, generate returns, really solid returns, but really underpin that exceptional diversification. 
Terrific. Well, Jace, it's been a, a bit of a time in the making. I've been trying to get this podcast done for many a year, so I'm super happy that we managed to get there. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.